Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. We didn't look for the these A-list celebrities. They found us, you know, like our first client that was an A-lister. This was our biggest client. LMFAO launched that music video called Party Rock Anthem or something like that. Huge success. They blew up and they contacted us and they were really stressed out. I didn't even know who they were. Like, we're hey, we're LMFAO and we got an issue. We need 40,000 t-shirts <laughs> uh, and we need in Calgary, uh, Canada next week. Can you help us? We're like, what? <laughs> is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is David Dang Vu. He's a location-independent serial entrepreneur and educator who has sold over a million dollars in courses on the Udemy platform to 45,000 unique students and is the creator of their number one best-selling business course of 2017. David first builds successful location-independent businesses himself and then documents exactly what he did in his Udemy courses and now has students all over the world that have been able to replicate his success by following his methods. To give just two examples, David uses Airbnb rental arbitrage to net himself over $300,000 a year in passive residual income, and he also runs an eBay dropshipping business that nets him an additional $300,000 a year in passive income. In just the last 2.5 years, his course sales on Udemy have netted him an additional $400,000, and he runs all of his businesses remotely. He's an avid world traveler, and we're now doing this interview on the Nomad Cruise. We're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean about one day before we land on the shores of Recife, Brazil. David, welcome to the show. M-A-T-T, Matt. Man, it is exciting and honestly an honor to be on your show. Thank you for, for having me, my man. Awesome to have you here, my man. I'm super excited to get you on the show. Lots of stuff to talk about just to set the scene for people. We have just opened a bottle of Rioja Crianza, and we're going to be drinking through that on our way. And we did embark from Spain, so quite the fitting varietal, this I think. This is perfect. Yeah, I just took my first sip, and it's, just, it's, it's good. 
Well, let's start off with, before we get into the business stuff, just a little bit with your background, sort of where you grew up and what was your path to becoming an entrepreneur and deciding to take this route in life? Jeez, that's a great question, man. I get asked this a lot, actually, but I'll start back with my family history. The uh, normal hungry immigrant story, you know, my parents came from Vietnam. They arrived to this country not speaking a lick of English, not having any money. They were uh, war refugees and they gained citizenship through political asylum because they were escaping uh, the country. So they came over here and uh, yeah, no, no English, no money, no opportunities, no family, nothing, you know. They met each other and then they gave birth to me and I was born in San Diego. So growing up, it was quite interesting because like I always thought I was that weird kid, you know, like all the other kids had like nice shoes and nice clothes and all the new video games. And I was just like poor immigrant kid that didn't have anything. But I watched my parents work incredibly hard. And that's one of the first lessons I got. Growing up, my mom, I owe all my success to my mom, seriously. She gave me valuable lessons. And she told me early on, I remember nine, 10, 11 years old, as I was growing up, she said, David, you're so lucky to be born in America. David, you're so lucky to learn the language. When you grow up, don't become an employee like your mom and dad. This is interesting because most people would say, go to school, you know, graduate, get a good job, and then, you know, go out and make a ton of money. But no, my mom understood something differently, right? She wasn't like academically smart, but she was street smart. So she saw that the owner of the company she was working at was like never there. They're always on vacation, on holiday, making money while all the employees were working, right? So she said, Dave, when you grow up, don't be an employee like your mom and dad. Start a business. Be an entrepreneur. I don't care what you do. Just be an entrepreneur and have a business of your own. So she instilled this this idea in my head at a very early age, you know, and uh, that's that's kind of where my journey all started. If I look back, it, it starts with my mom. That's amazing. I was also based in L.A. I wasn't born there, but the last seven years or so that I was in the U.S., I was based in L.A. So we have a little bit of California West Coast overlap there. But what was then from that the rest of your trajectory sort of after you got through high school and you sort of became an adult and you had to start making decisions? What was your path from there? My path from there early on was just finding any way to make a buck. Right. And I found out very quickly uh, in school selling things to my my friends. Like literally, I was the the guy that was going to the dollar store and I noticed all the kids in school were always asking for pencils and erasers and highlighters because they always lost them, right? And they're always asking me and other people, hey, do you have an extra one? And no one had one. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go to the dollar store because I had a dollar for, you know, allowance for lunch and see what I could buy there. And I noticed like you could buy a pack of pencils and, you know, a bunch of erasers and, you know, a bunch of highlighters for a dollar, you know, like a pack of pencils, 12 pack for a dollar. So I literally started my journey in middle school slanging pencils to my friends like you want a pencil 50 cents you know you want a pencil a dollar right so i started making like four or five six dollars and going hey this is awesome and this is where i learned supply and demand you know and then it gets really interesting later the kids started asking for like candy because their parents wouldn't give them money to buy candy because you know you don't want to have kids, you know, doped up on sugar and candy, right? So I would go to the dollar store and buy like Reese's Pieces and Hershey's Kisses and buy a ton of stuff. And you want some candy? 25 cents, right? So so, so I started making like $10, $20. I, you know, it wasn't a lot of money, but I remember like I would, I would make enough money in a week or two where I had enough money to buy a new pair of shoes or buy a video game, you know? So I always knew just flipping and selling shit was like, 
the best way to go. And that kind of transitioned to after I graduated high school, you know, working on different odd jobs, working as a bartender, working in outside sales. But I always had that thirst to like buy stuff, you know, go to garage sales and buy stuff and flip it on eBay. This is when eBay was born when I was like 17. So I've been uh, selling stuff on eBay, you know, so anything I can do to make a few hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, I would do it, you know, and, and, and it just, you know, was, was very easy to do just buying and reselling stuff. That's awesome, man. I can remember being back in high school as well. And my passion at the very start of high school was hip hop music. And I became a DJ in high school because I wanted to spin hip hop music. And so then I realized what I could do is I could make mixtapes. I could take them into school. I did that too. And I, I, did, you that, did, I well. did that too. I used to burn a bunch of songs, MP3s on, on CDs and like, you know, make it look nice and a little cover, you know, and like 1998 best top 40 songs you know and yeah i, I saw that too <laughs> so during the napster days <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so and i was and i was in high school probably a little bit but I, so i was in high school from er, like 91 to 95 was my high school which was really the golden era of hip-hop yeah, right yeah, 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 i mean yeah, the 90s yeah, yeah, so then years. i was like mixtapes and then i was like you know what i bet people would pay me to start djing that stuff so then i went around and i started apprenticing with all the djs that got paid spinning at proms or weddings or whatever and i was like i'll just go with you for free I'll do whatever you want, take requests, carry your records, just show me how you do what you do. So I did that in high school, and then I started my own mobile DJ company. Oh, cool. And then I also was subcontracting <laughs> for the other ones. I was like, you guys, if you have business, like you can take your cut and then pay me to do it, but I also have my own stuff. So I sort of built it up that way as well. I just had a you know, love for that and realizing that there was a demand for people that understood what music people wanted to hear and could play it and could do it well. And so I worked on that craft early as one of my first sort of entrepreneurial ventures. And then I did it through college, right? DJ the show on the radio station in, wow. in college, but then came back and like you would do the weddings and the prom circuit like all summer. So my friends are all working at the mall, you know, and I'm just out at these like epic events, like DJing these things on the weekend. And I didn't have to even yeah, work working, during the week. Working once or twice a week, making more money than what your friends were making. Exactly. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. really cool. Man. I exactly. didn't know that. You're a DJ. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if your audience knows that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, maybe my precursor to being back on the microphone of the yeah, podcast, right? right? Exactly. My early days, man. My early days when I was coming up. Um, That's so, awesome, man. So, okay. And then, so from there, you know, when you then had choices to make about, you know, college and career and this kind of stuff, like, did you, you know, consider sort of um, more traditional career path or were you just like purebred entrepreneur and just went your own? No, definitely a purebred entrepreneur. I mean, I went to college because my dad was really adamant about me being the first in the family to go to college and graduate, I shut down that dream really fast. Like I went to one semester of college and said, F this, this is not for me and dropped out. Like, so I'm, I'm a college dropout. I literally just went to half a semester, you know? Yeah. I remember like getting involved in anything involving sales or business. I got involved in some weird MLMs at that time, which I hate MLM to this day. I got involved with buying and reselling power bands. You know, I don't know if you remember those power bands that uh, the Lakers and all these like NBA stars were wearing at that time. And then I remember starting and trying like, they say the average millionaire has failed at like seven or eight different things. I think for me, it was like 20. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, like I, I made a couple hundred dollars, a couple thousand, but it wasn't anything significant, you know? And then my first home run was when a buddy of mine started an online uh, company selling t-shirts. And this is really interesting. This is prior to Teespring days. So anyone listening, this is really, really old stuff, like 2002, 2003. We had to build our own website through, uh, using Drupal and all that. It was a, it was a headache. But uh, yeah, like he was uh, making like $4,000 a month in revenue and uh, brought me on board. And we started working together. And this is when I actually learned what drop shipping was. 
I didn't even know it was called drop shipping until like years later. Like it, it was just a, a method of shipping a product to a customer through a vendor, right? So we started selling a ton of t-shirts, landing big accounts. And then we started getting accounts from the music industry. We were making shirts for Taylor Swift. We were making shirts for LMFAO. Then, then the success was huge from there. It became a multi-million dollar company. And then I exited the company selling my shares because I was working way too hard. I didn't have any leverage. It was basically me and uh, we had like one employee and it was my partner and like his wife. And that was it, you know, and we were working like 60, 70, 80 hours a week processing orders and uh, talking to all of our accounts. And it was just, a, you know, so did that for a couple of years and had a ton of success, made a ton of money and then uh, left that and then started a couple other things. And yeah. How did you land those A-list clients? Because there's a lot of people that start out and they've got a product or a service that might be high value, might be really good quality stuff, and they start selling it and they make a certain amount of money. But wh- how did you accelerate from where you started with the t-shirt sales to getting LMFAO and Taylor Swift as clients? Innovation, for sure innovation. Because at that time, there was literally no one else that was advertising this online. Like we were the first company to say we do t-shirt printing, right? In a way where, of course, there's a lot of t-shirt printers, right? But there was no one doing it online in a way where you can upload your image onto a t-shirt template and see what it would look like. Like you have your company logo, right? Or you have this design idea in your head, right? And you can upload that to our website, and show it on the front of the shirt, the back of the shirt, on the sleeve or wherever you want, and then create a a digital mock-up. And then we would give you a quote within 24 hours and say, this is how much it would cost to print 12 shirts, 24 shirts, 60, 100, 500, 1,000, right? So we came up with that idea. While we, we started as a company just selling blank shirts, we were not printing at all. And then we noticed that a lot of people that were buying the T-shirts were buying it to print. So we came up with the idea and said, hey, why don't we offer printing as a service? And we started contacting local printers that would print for us. And then what we did was we just buy the T-shirts from American Apparel or Next Level, these these T-shirt manufacturers. They would ship the shirt to the printer, not to us. The printer would print because we have the mock-up, the digital mock-up from the customer, right? And then we have an upcharge on that print. And then we had the printer ship it to the customer. We had a seven to 10 day turnaround time. So I would answer your question with innovation. We were the first to do that. That's really significant. I think that it wasn't simply the product that you're selling, and it wasn't even simply the way you were marketing it or who you were getting in front of it. It was the brilliance of the company and the success of the company was actually the user experience and the way that you facilitated something that other companies could not when buying your product, and you stood out completely against and differentiated yourself from all of the other people trying to compete with you at the exact same product and maybe even compete with you on price and sell it for lower undercut you, but you guys had the user experience that no one else did. Yes, because at that time, there was probably a handful of companies doing the same thing we were doing, selling blank shirts. And then there were a bunch of companies advertising online that they would do the printing, right? But there was no one place you could go to to buy the shirts and do the printing and do your mock-up in one seamless place. You know, now they got Teespring and Amazon's, everyone's doing it now. We were the first to do that. And that's how we got the attention of, because uh, we didn't look for the these A-list celebrities. They found us, you know, like our first client that was an A-lister. This was our biggest client. LMFAO launched that music video called Party Rock Anthem or something like that. 
huge success. They blew up and they contacted us and they were really stressed out. I didn't even know who they were. Like, we're, hey, we're LMFAO and we got an issue. We need 40,000 t-shirts <laughs> uh, and we need it in Calgary, uh, Canada next week. Can you help us? We're like, what? <laughs> yeah, we found your website. Uh, you know, we're like, sure. Well, we'll see what we can do, you know? And man, I got some crazy stories there as well. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just being, being innovative, being different and standing out and doing something different. That's amazing. And so then you ended up selling your shares out of that company because you were trading too much of your time. Yeah, man. I was working, not even joking. I was working from the moment I wake up to the moment I put my head down to sleep. You know, I I have these A-listers and their managers and their merchant sales managers hounding me like all hours of the day, you know, like, hey, we need... 25,000 t-shirts in, in Europe. We need to, like, oh my God. I'm like, why didn't you tell me like two weeks ago, you know? And it was so much stress and we had to like hire temporary teams because the print shop was only operating eight to 10 hours a day. So we had to hire temporary teams to work at the print shops 24 hours a day, seven days a week to spit out these shirts to fill the 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 t-shirt order next week you know, and ship it and have it landed in a different country, you know? So it was incredibly stressful. There were a lot of moving parts, you know? Yeah, man, I remember just like losing sleep and just like incredibly stressed out, making a ton of money, but not really enjoying my life. Now, when you look back on that now, and we're going to get through some of your latest companies that you built and all that kind of stuff, you are now at this point in your career, a master system and process builder. And you do something, you build a system and process, you hire someone else to run it, and you create a almost entirely automated or mostly automated business process. Now, when you look back on this as your first big, successful, lucrative venture, but you were spending that much of your own time, when you look back on it now, do you think that you could have built the systems and processes? You just didn't know how to do it at that point in your experience. We grew way too fast. That was the reality. And my partner and I at that time, we were still relatively very young. So we, I mean, yes, we could have hired like four people, five people to help manage manage the task, you know, but we were just way too cocky, you know, like we had the mentality that, oh man, we, we can't hire someone to do what we do. You know, it would take too much time to train them. They might quit on us six months, a year later. It's not worth it. You know, no one's going to do it as good as us. You know, and especially with these big accounts, they like working directly with us, right? So we just have this like fear, this like attitude that no one can do it, you know? But knowing what I know now, it could have easily been done, you know, just taking that extra time to hire and train someone and letting them shine versus shining yourself. I feel like that's one of the biggest lessons and one of the, the self employment trap where you think nobody can do it as good as you and therefore you're not willing to hire someone else because it won't be done as good as you and therefore you trap yourself into trading all of your time yep. for the money instead of building a system and process and that prevents you from really building an effective business enterprise. Yeah, exactly, totally. And then uh, it's really cool. Today, that company, that business has like 20 employees now. My ex-partner is doing really well and yeah, so lesson learned, right? So <laughs> that's awesome. And so then from there, so you sold out and you recaptured your time and you had a good, you know, bit of cash there from the sale and everything else. So you were comfortable. And so then what were your decisions from there in terms of your entrepreneurial? So path while and- while I was doing that, I was dabbling into another industry with gift cards. Long story short, I found uh, the gift card industry 
uh, needed a disruption. And at that time, there was like $100 billion in gift card sales annually. And that wasn't the market that I was going after. What I understood was approximately 10% of that market goes unused. So imagine this, in the US, $100 billion in gift cards are generated a year for birthdays and holidays, mainly during the holidays, right? Because people don't want to buy a present and they want to buy you, Matt, a $100 Starbucks gift card, right? So huge industry. But the problem is 10% of that, $10 billion of that credit to all these retailers never gets used up. I, long story short, I found that there were a lot of people that had unused gift cards. They say the average U.S. household has about $300 in unused gift cards. So we went after that, right? So I started advertising online that we would buy gift cards for cash. And we built that into a huge empire, $3 million empire. And this was overlapping when you were doing the t-shirt business? This was like uh, overlapping in the last year of me doing the t-shirt business. So while I was like working the crazy 80-hour work week, I was dabbling in this space, just making like, you know, a few thousand dollars. And then when I exited, I, you know, had that big windfall of money. But I also had immediate cash flow coming in from the gift card. And then I really turned that into an actual business, building a website, advertising online, hiring people, and then really, really uh, driving the sales and, and, and scaling it. In that business, were you better than able to build systems and processes and then outsource them and 100%, hire? Yeah, 100%. So you were using less of your own time. Yes, yes. And then I, I turned it into, and that was like around the same time where I read the four-hour work week for the second time. Because I had read it once before, you know? And it's interesting because like a lot of times when you read a book, it depends on where you're at in your life right? So you read a book, you're like, oh, cool. This book was great. I learned a couple of concepts. But if you read that book five years later, it's like reading an entirely different book. You're like, how did I miss all this stuff? So I remember around that time, I read that uh, book for our work week again. And the thing that stood out to me the most was building a system, building a team, outsourcing, right? Letting other people shine. Because if you don't allow other people to do the work that you never give them the opportunity to shine, right? So you really got to let go of control, right? And this is what I really like, wow. You know, so start applying those, those things and um, hiring slow and firing fast and doing things like that really helped me a lot in that venture. And I carry all of that over to all my other businesses and hustles and companies that I build as well. And so when you are focused on a company like that and you're building it and you're succeeding in the gift card thing, what is your thought process about maybe I should also start this other company or maybe I should also do this other venture? Like what is your entrepreneurial thought process in terms of the the serial nature of your business ventures? I'm always looking for the next big thing. I'm always, even right now as I'm sitting with you and we're hanging out with all these digital nomads, I'm, I'm keeping a close ear to the ground, right? My spirit comes from the challenge, Because I feel like when I start businesses, I'll be honest, I get bored of them. You know, it gets very mundane. I can see the beginning, see the middle, see the end, see how it's going to scale, see how it's going to grow to X amount of revenue or whatever. After a while, I get bored. So for me, I like starting something brand new in a new space because I like gaining that experience and gaining that knowledge. So while I'm building a business, I'm also looking for what's the next B and C business. That's just how I operate and how I run. So how did you get into your eBay dropshipping business? What was the transition into that? For you? So while I'm building this, this gift card business, this is going on three years now. I think we peaked at about $3 million in revenue and doing really well. I started dabbling back into dropshipping. 
right? And it's interesting because I, I have a, you know, a decent social media following, not like 10,000, 50,000 or 100,000 people, but I got a couple thousand people that follow me and have heard about me throughout the years. And a lot of people started asking me for like mentorship or like, hey, David, um, how do you build a niche website and do this dropshipping thing or this gift card thing? And I really didn't have an answer for them. Like I can't really mentor you or help you because it would take too much of my time. So I always felt bad about that. And I always wanted to help the average person get started in a way where they can make their first hundred bucks online, right? And then eBay just screamed out to me because I always had that buying and selling on eBay thing since I was a kid, but just physical products, going to garage sales and, and, and things like of that nature. And then I discovered or read something one day about you can drop ship on eBay. I'm like, you can drop ship on eBay? And I took my experience with the t-shirt thing, right? And then someone mentioned that you can literally drop ship products from Amazon to eBay. And I said, no, it's not that easy. No way. So I literally, when I, I heard about this, I was messing around one day and I jumped online to eBay and I literally looked around my room and said, what can I buy on Amazon right now? And I found a pair of these cheap sunglasses, right? The style of the sunglasses is called Wayfarer. Are you familiar with these? They, they look like Ray-Bans, but the style is called Wayfarer, right? So I remember, okay, I'm, I'm going to go on Amazon and find Wayfarer sunglasses. And I found them and I was looking for the cheapest one because arbitrage, you know, buy low, sell high. And I found these Wayfarer sunglasses for like $2.99, 3 bucks or something like that. I shipped from China or somewhere like that. And I said, okay, I'm going to put this on my eBay store. So I literally went on this Amazon listing. I copied their photos. I copied their entire description and I put it on eBay and I listed it at $9.99 and it literally took me like four or five minutes to do, right? And then I hit list, went to bed, woke up the next morning and darn be told, it sold. And I was like, holy cow, someone paid me $9.99 on, on, on through PayPal on eBay for these Wayfair sunglasses. I was like, no way, it's not that easy. And then I went to Amazon. I purchased it and I put in the customer's uh, information, their, their, their shipping info and their address. And I had Amazon ship it to my eBay customer. And then I did the math because, you know, after eBay fees, you think you make seven bucks. No, I think I ended up making like four or five dollars profit after, after fees. And I was like, holy cow, that was like the easiest four or five dollars I ever made in my life. Like that, that, oh, that was way too easy. So a light bulb popped in my head. and I said, you know what? I think I can turn this into a lucrative business. So literally that whole entire year, I spent listing products. I had, uh, so I sold sunglasses. So naturally I started adding other sunglasses and other different styles and different colors. So I had a little sunglass store, right? And then I started selling those little, that little rope you put around the sunglasses to hang around your neck. So I started selling accessories for sunglasses, right? Then naturally I started selling other products, you know, and then I had this store of, of 500 products and then a thousand products and then a couple thousand products. And then by the end of my first year, I cleared about 300 and something thousand dollars in sales and netted about 100K in profit. So I created this really cool, compelling store, all verifiable income. I screenshot everything, right? And then I started sharing this on social media and people were just going, holy cow, this is insane. Can you make an online course about this? And then that led to the next thing. So, so then I created an online course for it and um, the rest was history, you know? And that online course, is that the one that became the best-selling course of 2017? 2016 and 17, yeah. It was the number one business-selling course. I remember I had my, my cool moment of pride when uh, Gary Vee, 
these like big heavy hitters with big audiences, right? Gary V, Seth Godin, they started publishing their online courses on Udemy too. And these guys have way bigger audiences than me, right? And then I would see these courses and then after a couple months of them launching their course, they're also in the business category. I would check to see who's ranked number one and you, lo and behold, you see the David Vu's little eBay course number one, Gary V number two, Seth Godin number three. I'm like, oh my God, it's so cool. I take a screenshot of that and, and share that as well, you know? And, and then uh, now, if you look at it now, at the time of this recording, uh, you'll see Seth Godner or Gary Vee at number one. My, I'm, maybe I'm number three, but it's always, always fluctuates between the one and three spots, you know. Uh, but it's really cool. I was just like really blown away. <laughs> so this little eBay course. That's amazing. I love that story because you first do something and you do it successfully, build the systems and processes which are replicable. Then you simply share with other people exactly how you did what you did. And then people are buying your course. And of course, it's selling a lot because it's actually working. Yes. And people are replicating your model and they're also making money using your methods. Yes. I think that's incredibly important to number one, be transparent and authentic. Because I noticed the biggest differentiator with online course creators, right? Is there's a ton of junk out there, man. So many like shams and scams and like gurus. I'll show you how to make a million dollars in real estate. I'll show you how to make a million, right? And they all teach on like theory, and they're not even teaching what they're practicing. And that's what gets me the most, right? So when I wanted to create this course, I never wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be lead by example. Whatever I'm doing is exactly what I'm teaching. What I'm teaching is what I'm doing, right? So I think that's really important when you're making a course. And I think that's one of the reasons why it became so popular and so successful. And yeah. And then you follow that up with your latest course, which is on your venture regarding the Airbnb rental arbitrage. Right, right, right. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about, I'm really excited to get into that because there's a lot of real estate people in the audience that are listening to this. And I think your model is super interesting. So I'd love to hear maybe even just from the beginning, how you got started. I want you to explain the business model, but also just how you started and how you got into it and what you sort of learned along the way as you were developing right, this so model. Going, going throughout my story and going through like, how do I think this way? I think like there's that saying, follow your dollar, right? That's a really important lesson. Like I always follow every dollar that I spend, every dollar that I get, right? I ask myself the question, when I'm spending this money, where is that money exactly going and how are they making money, right? So going, going to Airbnb and talking about real estate, what happened for me was I was using Airbnb. I learned about the platform a long time ago. So I've been using it for about seven, eight years now. And everywhere I traveled, I always used Airbnb, right? Just didn't like hotels. I like the whole personal experience thing. And I remember one time in Texas, I was going to a conference and I had checked in and the host wasn't there. He gave me a code to like his lockbox. And I checked in and gave me a code to the lockbox. I got the key, opened the door. And I was like, wow, that was really easy. The dude wasn't even there, right? And then I remember three days later, he came to check up on me to, to make sure everything was okay if I need extra towels. And I just like started talking to the dude. And I was like, hey, man, I, I always had the impression, by the way, that every single Airbnb was privately owned. Like it was owned by the person putting it on the website, on the platform. That's the impression I always had. So when this guy came and, and talked to me, the guy that listed the, the apartment and the host, I just simply just asked him the question. I'm like, hey, just curious. Uh, is John, I think his name was John. I was like, hey, John, do you own this property? He's like, no, man, I just rent. I'm like, you don't own this property? You rent it? And then you put it on Airbnb? He goes, yeah. I was like, wow, that, that, that's really interesting. And then he said, I have five of these in the same building. And then he walked away and I was just like, oh my God, light bulb, right? 
And literally right when he walked away, I jumped on my laptop and I Googled the name of the apartment complex in, in Texas. And literally I watched that he was renting these two bedroom apartments for like $1,300 because that's what the price was online and they had vacancies and stuff. And then I said, wait a minute, I just paid this dude $120 a night. And then I did the math, right? I'm like, if he rents it out, then I looked at his calendar. I started doing like a heavy investigation in R&D here. I started looking at his calendar. I saw that he was 25 days booked this month, right? And I did the math. I'm like, oh my God, this guy's getting like 4,000 and some change in revenue. And he's renting it for $1,300 a month. And now he has five apartments. Oh my God, like this, this is a business, right? So went home on that trip three years ago. And then I said, if he can do this, I can do the same thing. And I did some research. I live in Huntington Beach, California. I said, maybe I can replicate the same thing in California. Instead of having to buy a property and put it in Airbnb, why don't I see if I can rent a, a cool flat by the beach or something and see if I can arbitrage it and make a little bit more. And uh, yeah, I went into it. My first property was um, like a five minute walk from the beach. It was a two bedroom. We rented it for about $2,000 a month. We spent about 8,000 total for the first month's rent. The deposit, it wasn't furnished, so we had to furnish it ourselves, right? Yeah, so $8,000 in, and I did some math. If I rented it for this much a night, and I had this many nights rented, I would make my money back in about five to six months, okay? That was like the formula and the projection that I came with. Matt, I made my ROI back in two months. I was like, holy cow, this is a moneymaker, right? And then summer hit. So in Huntington Beach, summer is a really popular month, right? So we were charging like 100, 150 a night. When the summertime, we were charging three, $400 a night. So this $2,000 apartment was bringing like $10,000, $12,000 in revenue a month. And literally, we just took that initial 8K that I had put in, got the 8K back, got a second apartment, got that 8K back. You know, so we went from one to two, two to four, four to eight, and just ran, just did that doubling model. And um, today, fast forward, we're sitting at uh, 30 apartments. And then with the money that we made from there, five of them we actually own, we bought. And the other uh, 25, we just do the whole lease, subleasing. And uh, it's an incredibly lucrative business. Yeah, so I love it. Wow. So how do you select which apartments you're going to rent and how do you do your research on the projections in terms of both what the market rent is on Airbnb for that type of unit and also what you project a reliable occupancy rate to be, including seasonal adjustments for both vacancy and price? Like, how do you establish an accurate projection? Great, great question. So in real estate, they say location, 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 right? And that's nothing more than, than the truth. Same with Airbnb. There's incredible tools that you can utilize if you uh, don't want to use the tools. I didn't know about these tools until like a year and a half ago. But we just do market research on the platform. We just look at an area like Huntington Beach, see what other people are listing their properties for and see how occupied they are. And then kind of do an assessment if we got a property in generally the same area for this much money and rent it out for this many nights, how much money we would make, right? So that's kind of an assessment that you can do just without these tools. But there's an incredible tool that we uh, discovered about a year and a half called, called AirDNA. Okay, so AirDNA.com for, for anyone listening. Um, AirDNA aggregates all of the data 
on Airbnb. And this is some cool geeky stuff, man. Like you can do some gnarly, incredible things with this. And this gives you a huge edge and a huge advantage over competitors that don't use it. And 99% of people don't know or use this because you have to pay like 40 bucks a month to get the aggregated data in a certain zip code, right? But this is incredible. So imagine being able to spy on every single listing in Huntington Beach or in, you know, in Los Angeles or whatever, right? And you can literally see what everybody is making annually. You can see what they're charging per night. You can see how occupied there are, occupancy rate. You can see everything. You can see the top 20 listings in a certain neighborhood and then see why are the top 20 guys making this much money? Is it because of the photos? Is it because of optimization with their title and their description? Why are they making so much money? And you can literally pick it apart and emulate them or do it better, right? So AirDNA is an incredible tool that you can use to, to predict an area. And I'm assuming that Airbnb is also an amazing place for savvy entrepreneurs like yourself to come in because, as you said, most of the listings on Airbnb are just regular people who might be like renting out their house or they own a rental property or two and they're renting them out. And they're not really savvy professional no. copywriters, no, you no, know, not at all. Uh, SEO optimizers, that kind of stuff. So when somebody like you comes in, you know, even if the average is, you know, whatever the average amount is that most people are making, if that's just somebody that's saying, hey, here's my property on, you know, you can rent it and you come in and you understand how to optimize the title, how to write copy and describe the property in a compelling way, how to create pictures that are yes. going to be emotionally alluring in ways that's going to completely differentiate your listings from an average regular person that doesn't have that business experience. Yeah, hundred percent as a, an entrepreneur and a marketer. Yeah. It's really easy to stand off from the crowd. So when you were assessing sort of this business opportunity and I guess through your experience, you know, what were some of the downside risks that you initially assessed? Like if I get committed into this thing and I'm signing on this long-term lease and I'm doing this, you know, what were some of the downside risks and how did you mitigate Great against question. those? Great question. Legalities. So Airbnb has sort of a bad rap depending on what city you're in. The goalpost in Airbnb and where you want to kick that ball through the goalpost can change every three to six months, meaning that right now it can be 100% legal and fine in your city. And in three to six months, it can go the complete opposite direction and be banned and illegal, right? And that's why I really like the rental arbitrage model because if you buy the property, it doesn't matter if you own or rent the property. If it goes south, you fall under the same legal jurisdiction. So if you own the property, it doesn't matter. You, If the city says we are banning short-term vacational rentals, it doesn't matter if you own or rent. You have to follow the same rules, right? And of course, you can fall back and go on your long-term rent, but that arbitrage of uh, cash flow is not there anymore, right? So renting these properties in certain cities is really critical because you're, you're on a one-year lease. And um, so we had about four properties in Huntington Beach. And then the city actually banned it last year. So we had to get out, right? But it wasn't that bad. Like we didn't actually lose any money. We waited until our lease ended and uh, talked to our landlord, knew that we couldn't do it anymore and they were totally okay with it. Lease ended. We didn't break the lease or anything. We just shuffled the, the listing to a different city. When you say it gets banned, is it... Airbnb that is being banned from the city? And are there other alternative platforms like VRBO or this different kind of thing that might not be banned? Or can you use like the old school, like Craigslist, like, hey, want to do a short-term three-month rental on Craigslist? Or is it you're not allowed to do short-term rentals, period? Like, how does that work? 
so we can dive really deep into this. And this is really good for your real estate audience because I get asked this a ton. You got to understand both sides, right? So what's happening is Airbnb preneurs like me will come in there and disrupt the entire market, right? We'll literally, there's a building with 100 units. We can grab like 10, 15, 20 units. It just depends on how much capital we have, right? The problem that creates in the community is at the end of the day, as an Airbnb preneur, as a business operator, I need to understand that I'm operating a short-term hotel business in a residential zone, period, right? So with that comes consequences, okay? Residences in the community may not like that, that there's random people checking in every few days, right? So people can start complaining, right? And also we're grabbing a lot of these these residential housing uh, apartments. So the rent goes up for other people, right? So we're literally disturbing the market here. You have to be really cautious and careful with this. So when a city comes in there and says, hey, we don't like that. There's a ton of people complaining. People are having, like in LA, for example, this, this uh, LA is going through a huge headache with this. Like people that live in LA can't even find apartments to live anymore because there's so many people doing Airbnb. Because like 25% of that residential market is on Airbnb. That's a huge problem, right? So how do we fix it? I don't have an answer for that. I really don't, you know? I do my part. I collect and pay and remit my taxes to the city and do what I'm supposed to do. You know, a lot of people that do Airbnb, unfortunately, they don't do that. That's another huge issue with the city is that these people that are operating um, these Airbnbs are doing it illegally. They're not paying taxes on it. They're not reporting it, you know? That's a big problem too as well. So understanding where you're coming from, if you're going to come in and start this, I'm being very honest, it's a volatile business, right? It really is. But you got to be flexible and be able to be mobile and move with the market. And that's what it's been like for me. The way I think about it is, while all the lawmakers and all the people are trying to figure it out, I'm just going to do my hustle, make money while everyone's trying to figure it out, and then just adjust when that happens, just like what happened in Huntington Beach. So was it the Huntington Beach was like the city council? Because the other thing is that sometimes it's building specific, it's HOA specific, like no short term rentals in this building, like the HOA is going to pass a law and say, no, the city literally, they had like a rally, right? They had like members that were Airbnb hosts come and talk. They had people in the community come and talk. Both sides share, share their stories on why they don't like Airbnb, why they should allow Airbnb. And at the end of the day, the city council votes on it. You know, they voted that they wanted Airbnb out because there was just too many complaints and it was just a really, uh, it was just a big headache for the city. So they just banned any short term rental under 30 days. So anything under 30 days is not allowed. Anything over 30 days is allowed. And so how did you adjust to that? Did you continue with the rentals that you had on 12 month leases? Did you try to rent those for 30 day, like short term periods? Or did you just pay to get out of the lease early and go somewhere else? So good question. So when something like that happens, it usually takes a while before it gets enforced and goes into effect, right? So when we found out about that announcement, our leases were ending in four to six months anyways. And then, you know, we talked to the landlords and they knew they knew what was going on. They were bummed out about it, you know. But yeah, we just we just ran our listing until uh, the listing ended. We didn't have to break the lease or anything. We just ended it Uh, when the time came. We just didn't renew the lease. And then we just relocated to literally the city next door like seven minutes away in Costa Mesa where it's a hundred percent legal and you can get a permit for it and all this stuff. So we just relocated to, uh, to the next nearby city. 
So the way that you're doing this and the way for somebody to get started, let's say they do the legal research, they're going to start obviously in a city where it's yes, currently completely yes, legal. Yes, There's yes, nothing yes, on the horizon yes, yes. about any discussion of anything. Do. So you should have hopefully a decent runway, meaning even if in terms of your 12 yes. months, discussion happens, this happens, they pass something, they're going to still give you a buffer before it's enforced, as yes. you said. So that's the way to start it. So what you're doing is you're putting usually typically the, the first month in deposit as a regular tenant would on an apartment. You're verifying that this apartment building allows sublease and short-term staff, of course, that the HOA hasn't banned that, 99% right? 99% of them don't allow sublining. And this is a big one. A lot of people get into these one-year, two-year leases and they will just disregard that part of the contract that you can't sublet and they'll just do it anyways. I see so many people crumble doing that. I highly, highly advise against that. Always get a subletting amendum on the contract that you're allowed to do it. It's always the best way to go. And how do you do that is the question, right? That's a tough one. It all comes down to sales and negotiation skills. So when I meet with a private owner or I meet with the, um, a property management company, I let them know right from the get-go what we plan on doing, okay? Every single time, I'm always going to get met with resistance. And it's always because of risk, they don't want people that they don't know into a residential community and could disrupt the community or destroy the property, right? So how do you mitigate that? Very, very simple. And it all comes down to really sales. And I just simply let them know, like, you need to understand that short-term renters normally are just there to sleep and shower. So as a matter of fact, there is less wear and tear in the apartment than there is when you rent it out for someone for a year or two years. And because of my track record now, I can show them like my prior listings. I've had this listing for three years. It looks immaculate from day one because I advertise this product as a place to stay for a couple of nights or a couple of weeks. Okay. So if my new check-in comes in and the place is not exactly like the photos, if the carpet is dirty, if the walls have marks on the walls, if it looks tacky, right, I'm going to get a bad review. So every single time someone checks out and checks in, it's professionally cleaned every single time. We make sure everything looks like day one, right? So I get them to understand that, right? And then I let them know that I also pre-screen. Well, we, our team pre-screens our guests. So we don't just allow everyone to stay there. So if John Doe hits us up and goes, hey, man, I'm coming with my boys for a bachelor party. We're going to say no to that, right? So we, we do pre-screen guests. We don't let everyone stay at our place. We want the right clients, right? And then if it comes down to if it's a money issue, a lot of times we'll throw extra money at them. We'll offer 10, 20% more on top of what they're asking for. Uh, and if it's a risk thing they're, they're concerned about, we'll pay you double, triple the deposit if we have to. So that gets them to feel a little bit more assured that it's okay to rent it to us. And, and the last thing I usually fall back on is, look, let's not do a one-year lease. Let's try it out for three months, right? If you have any complaint from any of your neighbors, if you don't like anything we're doing within those three months, we will get out, right? So we're setting up shorter term leases with them. And then most of the time if that happens after three months, you go, oh, you guys are great. We haven't had any complaints. This is going great. You're paying our rent. And then we do a one year lease. So there's always these little tricks and, and things that you can do to convince someone, a, a property owner, a property management company to give you their apartment. You know, it, it comes down to just selling yourself and selling your operation. 
I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. I agree with that 100%. I mean, and that is the nature of real estate, right? You can always figure out a way to negotiate something. And if somebody thinks that there is a higher risk in a certain area, even if it's like a tenant that has a lower credit score, has this or has that, well, they can pay like, you know, last three months in rent or pay a higher deposit or do whatever it takes to mitigate. So there's always negotiating ways usually that you can make it appealing or mitigate what somebody else's perceived risk in doing business with you. So let's give a specific example. If somebody wants to start their first one, first Airbnb arbitrage example, right? You're going to rent a long-term 12-month apartment in an apartment building that allows subleasing, negotiate that into the contract. And then the the amount of capital that you'd have to have to start running this would be first month's rent, deposit, Deposit. and then you'd furnish it with a furniture package, right? So like the types of price point, let's just use one of your examples in in a place like Huntington Beach or, or, you know, Southern California. What are those numbers looking like for you? Six to seven K for one bedroom, eight to 10 K for two bedroom. That's first month. That's deposit. And it's a furniture package. If you have six to $7,000 in savings that you want to invest in something other than the stock market or mutual funds or whatever. And and for your audience, this is in California and Southern California, not like a ghetto area in the middle of nowhere. Right. And these apartments are, we're getting, these are like not your average apartments. They're not like the lower end apartments. These are luxury apartments. These are really nice places. So the long-term rent would be how, how much per month? In between two to three K. So two to three thousand dollars a month in rent, which gets you a luxury apartment in yes. Southern California, plus the deposit, plus then you're gonna furnish it with reasonably nice furniture. Yes, yes. So that you have that. And then you're gonna go in and do high quality photography. Yes. Of the that vacant unit. It is so important, Matt. I can't stress that enough. The number one secret success on Airbnb is photography. Because uh, you got to understand your audience, right? When you're on the platform, or anyone that ever used Airbnb is you have to understand you have 0.3 seconds to capture someone's attention because there's a hundred different listings that are looking at in any given area, right? So as they're scrolling, you literally just have 0.3 seconds and you capture their attention with the photo. They click on your photo. They look at the rest of the photos. Usually they look at photos first, even before the price. I stay at Airbnbs all the time. Of course Same, that's true. Right? So of photos course that's first, true. right? Yeah. And uh, you always want to lead with your best photo first and then the second, third, fourth and so on. So yes, if you're not a photographer, don't grab out your iPhone or your Android and take photos. That's what most people do on Airbnb. They're just you know homeowners that don't know how to operate a business. They're just taking photos on their phone. So you easily just by hiring a professional photographer, coming in there with the right light, the right contrast, the right editing, you can just kill it on the platform just by having a professional photographer. Okay. So in a market like Southern California, going for those luxury rentals, six to $8,000 gets you completely into the game. Yeah. And I want to mention something about the luxury apartments. Why do we go after those ones and why not the cheaper ones, right? 
I like running businesses for people that have the most money. Just the same amount of work. You can get a you know a lower end, not so luxurious apartment, right? But the amount of money you're going to make is less, and it's the same amount of work. Also, the customers you attract, you're not, you're you're nodding your head. The of customers course. you attract are so different. The people that can actually afford the premium apartments are typically the couples you want to attract anyways. A hundred percent. And the same principle is with long-term rentals, right? right? In terms of exactly. what type of property are you buying? What type of tenant are you looking for? You know, and all of this kind of stuff. And how are they going to treat the property when they're there? As you just said, the caliber of people that you're bringing in and all that kind of stuff. So right. yeah, a hundred percent. That's the model we run, the premium apartment. So then let's say you you do that. Somebody goes into their first one and they rent the apartment, they furnish the apartment, they do the security deposit. So they've got the 7,500 bucks or so to get in the game there. What types of cash flow and return can they potentially expect? Usually double the rent. So double the double rent. Double the rent uh, two and a half, maybe even three times, depending on how well you arbitrage it. And then Airbnb is taking their fee out of it. But are you netting twice what you're paying after the Airbnb fee. Yeah. So if you're paying two grand a month for the apartment after the Airbnb fee, you're taking in four grand a month. Yeah. So $2,000 a month net profit per month on one Airbnb. One Airbnb. That's literally the model that I teach in my course. So you're netting that. And then is that consistent? Is that an average across all of the seasons? Good question. That is an average across all the season, right? Depending on what area you're in, what city you're in, uh, you got to look at seasonality. So in Huntington Beach, summertime, boom, we were charging so much. Wintertime, it's not so desirable. We charge a little bit less. We still make a little bit of money, but we're making maybe, uh, you know, $800 profit that month, right? But we make it up for it in summer. So average all year round. And what I love about what you do is that you don't live near your rental property. So a lot of people have the perception that, oh, especially with Airbnb, right? Because like a lot of our clients are buying, you know, long-term rentals and we provide a turnkey solution, right? Where they're buying an out-of-state rental property and it's already furnished, has a tenant in place, has a local property manager collecting the rent. So they can live in Anaheim or Southern California if they want, but own a property on the other side of the country. They don't have to be there. But I think there's a perception about short-term rentals, Airbnbs, because a lot of times like you go stay in an Airbnb, like the host meets you there and says, hello, welcome to the Airbnb. And they sit down with you. And, you know, that's a lot of the experience. But you've created a system where you do not have to live anywhere near your short term rentals. In the last three years of doing this with uh, well over 5000 reservations now, like you've guests checking in now, I personally only met two families. And that's only because at the Huntington Beach property I was telling you about. I had all my fishing gear in the garage. So I would literally just go, <laughs> go, to the, go to the apartment, open the garage, grab my fishing gear, and, then, and the guests just happened to check in at that time. I tried to avoid them. So I literally have not met any of our guests or seen their face or anything, you know? Building a system is really important. Having a great team is really important. We can talk a lot about that too as well. When you were getting into this, I mean, anytime you're learning a new business and you're refining your processes and stuff, I mean, did you make some mistakes at the beginning when you were starting 100%. your first couple? Well, how was it? How, how was so, it? What happened? Oh, yeah, getting I, into I, the I game. Stories for you. So when you first start any business, and I tell everyone this, like, don't outsource, don't hire people, do everything yourself. You have to. It's so important. So I was the guy that was going and getting the apartment. I was the guy going and buying the furniture, renting the U-Haul, driving around to different furniture stores, trying to get a deal, right? Buying some used furniture, finding some new ones, right? Going to TJ Maxx. You got TJ Maxx? Yeah, you know TJ Maxx. TJ Maxx and Marshalls and shopping. 
as a as a dude, this like this totally sucks. I hate doing this, right? And I literally would get the keys from the landlord and wouldn't have the apartment turnkey ready to rent until two weeks, even three weeks later. That was my first apartment, first apartment. So even making two months on ROI is really good, right? But you have to do that because you'll start learning what you can do that's more efficient, what's faster, what's more optimized. And then I have it to now today where literally if we get the keys on the 15th, we will already have the apartment rented on the air on Airbnb by the 16th. We make money on day one. That's how efficient we are now. Right. And I can tell you the difference with that. Right. So real quickly, we have a furniture broker. Okay. So we call them up and tell them exactly. We literally, we, we want uh, four queen size beds with nightstands and, you know, a dining table. We already know what we want. We call a furniture broker. We, we get it from them. They do a free delivery and installation. Okay, we tell them the day that we're moving in is the 15th. So we have everything already ordered. They come and they deliver everything that morning. We get the keys. They're in there that same hour, right? We also have an interior decorator that we pay. So we outsource all that task to her. And this is someone that went to school for this. And she, when she does her job, oh my God, the place looks freaking amazing. So a week prior to getting the keys from the landlord, let's say on the 15th. So by the 7th or 8th, we are handing over her some cash. Obviously, we have this trust and relationship with her, and she's already going and buying everything for the kitchen, for the bathroom, for the beds, for the pillows. She's already shopping that whole entire week. And actually, for her, it only takes two or three days. So she's driving around to the TJ Maxx and the Marshalls and all the home goods and all these places, right? And buying all the stuff, right? The day of the move in, okay? The furniture people come and install the furniture. She comes there and unloads and unpacks and does everything. By 5 p.m., everything is done. The photographer's there by 6 p.m. taking photos. That's how efficient we are. And actually, bonus tip for your listeners, we actually do something that's really cool, I think, is we actually advertise the listing on the first. So two weeks prior to us even getting the keys, we're already advertising the apartment for rent. Of course, we don't have all the photos, but we just put like one or two generic photos. That's it. And believe it or not, you'll actually still get reservations with one or two generic photos. People will ask, hey, what about the kitchen? What about the bathroom? I don't see any photos of that. Tell them this is a work in progress. The place is going to look very nice. Here's some uh, of our other apartments that you can check out that it will look similar. We're also um, renting it out for very cheap on the first two weeks. So we put the price very low to get because when when you first list a listing, um, you don't have any reviews. Right. So we put the place for like a place that we normally rent for two hundred dollars a night. We'll put it for ninety nine dollars a night just for the first two weeks so we can get away with putting only one or two photos. Right. So literally by the 16th, we already have a family checking in, you know, so we do that. That's a bonus one. So we make money on day one. We don't we don't we don't skip a beat. So in terms of operating expenses and you quoted some of these numbers to get in about, you know, first month's rent deposit and that kind of stuff to get into the game. But then you've got your furniture broker that you're paying. Then yeah, you've yeah, got yeah. your interior designer that you're paying. So is, is all of those upfront expenses and the professional photographer you're paying, is all that included? Yeah, in the- it's, all, it's actually not. See, when I was doing this, my first one, right, I went around doing everything myself thinking I was going to save money. But t- you, you already know time is more value than money. Like my time is worth way more. I can hire these people and pay them X amount of dollars. And it saves me a ton of time, but also saves me a ton of money. So I didn't have to go rent the U-Haul. I didn't have to go shop around, right? The furniture broker that I'm, I'm using, I'm getting everything about 10 to 20% higher than wholesale price. 
So the broker is the one that normally sells to the furniture retailers. But since I'm buying direct from him, he's charging me a 10 or 20% markup. You know, so I'm, I'm getting pretty good prices. I'm not paying retail prices. I'm not paying wholesale prices. I'm paying somewhere in between, you know? So I'm getting a good deal there and he does a free installation and delivery. So I'm getting a good, I don't have to worry about picking the stuff up and installing it. I remember, my God, I spent like three days like buying stuff from Ikea and like putting it all together, man. Like how professionals do it, right? Same with the interior decorator. She just spends like three, four days to do it. We pay her uh, between $500 to $800 per apartment, depending if it's a one bedroom or two bedroom, right? Right. And all that's included in that upfront cost to get in. Yeah. And the photographers, we usually pay about $100 to $200. bucks. And now in terms of operating expenses, as you are, you're leasing it for two grand, you're bringing in four grand after Airbnb fees. But then what about operating expenses in terms of, as you said, having it professionally cleaned after every tenant and those types of things? How does that factor into your net cash flow? Utilities average about $150, $150, bucks. Okay. And we live in California. We blast our AC during the summer, $150 to $200 bucks for electricity, gas, and uh, water. Uh, cleaning fees, we charge between 50 to 75 bucks, depending if it's a one bedroom or two bedroom. And that passes over to our guests. The guests pay for the cleaning fees. So we, we, we actually don't pay for the cleaning. And we always cushion five to $10 on top of the actual cleaning fee we pay our cleaning staff. So if the staff wants $50, we'll charge the guests $60. So we have like an extra $10 cushion for replenishables like toilet paper, paper towels, and things like that. And what are your occupancy expectations? And then what are your occupancy sort of realities as you assess that? Do you estimate conservative occupancies when you're doing your projections? And what do you find over the years has been your actual occupancy rates? 83%. Wow. Yeah, I already have the number for you. (laughs) Wow. Uh, 83%, 25 out of 30 days on average. That's what we shoot for every single month. And we are hitting that or even 90%, sometimes even 97%. We'll literally just have a one or two day miss in the month, you know, because it's really difficult to book out every single day in your calendar because you'll get someone that books from Monday to Wednesdays and then someone else that books from Friday to you get this one word two day gap, you know, so that's what we do. But we also have uh, some pricing software that takes care of some cool stuff for us there. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about the course that you created for this when you're explaining your model. What are people going to learn in the Airbnb arbitrage course that you created? I like to really spend extra time, energy and effort to stand out from anyone else teaching something similar. And what I found was a lot of other Airbnb courses will just, again, talk about the theory, talk about tips and tricks, but they never really show you their actual property, right? So we actually go out of our way and show you six of our properties. Like we walk you through like, hey, this is our apartment. This is our one bedroom that we have here in Anaheim. Let me show you and pick apart exactly the bed that we bought, the the coffee maker that we bought, how much we paid. And we literally walk you through bedroom by bedroom by bedroom so people can really get a visual. I literally, Matt, I gave you the whole, like almost... I would say 60% of the course on this podcast. So everything that we've been talking about is exactly what's on the course, you know? But you're going to, but you're going to, but like, if I'm intrigued by this, let's say, you know, I still want to know exactly like, how do I hire this furniture broker and how do I create the system and process? So I have a, you know, what what, what kind of copy do I write on my Airbnb listing? How do I get a, a, you know, the, the the lockbox entry thing and the instructions and, you know, how do I, how do I do it so that I don't have to live near the property? I can operate remotely. And you guys, you break down 
down all of your systems and processes that you we, built. We break down exactly how you can do this remote. So everybody else can replicate it yep. in whatever city they want. Yep, exactly. Yep. And just deploy your systems and processes. Yeah, we, we break that down. It's very simple. You, you need a checking in and checking out system. And you need boots on the ground. You need local help. You the, 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 the MVP of this whole entire operation is the cleaning team. You need a reliable, not one person, two person, but you need a reliable two to three person team because if one person is sick, you know, one, uh, two is one and one is none, right? You, you need to have a backup. Uh, and, and the cleaning person, I can't stress this enough, the cleaning person is the MVP. They are literally the ears and eyes of your whole entire operation. It comes down to training. So after everyone checks out and checks in, they see the property. They see if there's anything missing, anything wrong, and they're the ones that report to you. So uh, making sure you pay them, not just a normal salary. I go out of my way and I pay extra and I pay bonuses on top of everything. So make sure that we'll compensate, right? And also make sure you have a maintenance person. In case of the event, the toilet breaks at 10 p.m., right? An emergency happens. You have someone boots on the ground that will come there and help you. So that's really, really critical and important as well. So you're just having a team right from the get-go, especially, but most people, when they start, they, you know, they're, they're usually there as the boots on the ground, but as they want to travel or do something else, just make sure they have a team of help. And you go through that in your course yeah, and tell them how to yeah. build the team and each member that they need and how to find and hire them and how to basically yeah, create a exactly. whole system yeah. for to do it to replicate yeah. what you've done. And people on this very cruise that we're on have actually used taken your course, bought yeah. your course, replicated the model, and they're literally doing it in other countries. Yeah, yeah. Bastion, you know, the guy that was on the um, this cruise gave a, a forty five minute talk, and he was on my student. He is one of my students, and he signed up for the course last year. And it's so cool to hear Bastion's story, man. He now has um, a handful of properties as well, kicking ass. And he's from Germany. So now he's like the David Vu in Germany, right? Like he's the one on the podcast and on the blogs. And he's just tearing it up over there. And it makes me so happy to see that. But the model absolutely works, of course, yeah. I have students all over the place in Chiang Mai and That's Bali awesome. and stuff, yeah. That's awesome. So we're going to link up to your courses, both your eBay dropshipping and eBay course, as well as your Airbnb course in the show notes of this show. So you can go just to that one place at the maverickshow.com show notes and find the direct links to those. But let me ask you this now, just because you're such a successful course creator, you literally have the number one business course on Udemy for 2016 and 2017. Obviously, there's a lot of people that are competing in that course creation educational space. And you found a way really to stand out as an educator. And you have students writing you letters from all over the world and, you know, all of that, all of that stuff, but you're also you've sold forty five thousand, you know, plus courses, forty five thousand students you have that have that have been paying customers for your courses. What are because I feel like there are people who probably have you know value to share. They have they've passed the first test that you just said, which is first of all do something like actually do it and succeed in it and have value to share. And then you when they let's just say we're dealing with that kind of a person, right? They've done something successfully. They want to share that value and turn it into a course so they can help other people. Exactly what you're doing. What would you say are the top most important components to creating a great course that's going to be successful? I'll give you two. And this comes from personal experience. The first one is create a compelling story for yourself. Lead by example, right? Don't go and create a course just because you got one Airbnb listing. I didn't create the course until our 16th or 8th, I forgot the number, 16th or 18th Airbnb. 
I've already made a couple hundred grand revenue on Airbnb, right? So I created this unique story on Airbnb. And that title of that course is called How to Create an Empire and an Airbnb. And notice what the title says, How to Create an Empire, because I've, I've done it, right? So make sure you create that compelling story for yourself. So that way, when you share that story, it's captivating, right? With my EB course, I didn't launch the course until I until one year later. So I learned, hey, you can make five bucks, 10 bucks, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 200 bucks, $500 a month. But I didn't launch my course until after an entire year. So I was patient and I did my math, I did the taxes, and I said, holy crap, I made $106,000 profit. And then I launched a course saying how I made 100K profit on eBay without inventory. Right. So I created that unique, compelling story for myself. So being patient, creating that story for yourself is really important. And the second tip, man, I always got to say it delivery. Delivery is so important. As educators, you know, I think it's so important to make sure that your delivery style is captivating as well. You know, like I think about my, my English teacher in high school. That was my favorite fucking teacher, bro. Why? Because he was so weird and he was so like loud and so passionate about like literature and like spelling and like all these weird things that I, re I remembered him. Every other uh, teacher was like so dry and so boring, right? And if you talk to all my students that graduated the same year as me, everyone loved Mr. Ingle. That dude was cool, man, right? So like taking that extra time and effort to like be different, you know, like be exciting. You know, if you're going to teach something, make sure you're excited because like most people don't like to hear from people that are just dry and boring. And when I launched my eBay course, that's what I did. I actually went and looked at, there was 40 other eBay courses at that time when I launched. I literally watched every single eBay course and saw the instructor's delivery styles and they were just so boring, man. You know, so that's the tip I can give is uh, create a compelling story and have a great delivery when you're teaching. Awesome. That's really good advice. So let me ask you now, I want to just move in a little bit to the personal realm. You obviously are location independent and you were on the Nomad cruise at the yeah, moment. Man, I love this cruise. You, uh, <laughs> you, you travel around. And, a good and bit. I've had like three glasses of wine now. So <laughs> I'm very loosened up at this point. So I can, I, that's, why I'm, that's why I saved all the personal stuff till the end. Uh, <laughs> I want you to tell the, uh, this is a really amazing story because I think there's a lot of people that have an impression of the digital nomad lifestyle, location independent, world traveling people, that it's not a very conducive environment, I think is the stereotype to meeting long-term relationship partners, to finding a spouse, to because there's this alternative kind of perception. Oh, you need to settle down. You need to be in this place. If you're doing this traveling location-dependent lifestyle, how are you going to meet a spouse and, and all this kind of stuff? And you uh, <laughs> literally uh, met your spouse on My the wife, Nomad yeah, yeah. Cruise. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and you guys just got married recently. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Thank and you. it's amazing to see the two of you together because you're so much in love. And it's we're, just, we're in the honeymoon it just, phase. It just shines. Yeah man it's 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 firing to see but i'd love for you to just tell the story of how you met and uh, all that kind of stuff it's amazing <laughs> i'm, I'm blustering right now it's amazing yeah we met on our prior cruise so this is the seventh edition of nomad cruise we met on nomad cruise number five which is uh about a year ago actually so september last year we're now november right yeah november going on december i was invited to be uh, a speaker on that cruise to give a talk she was the photographer right and uh, throughout that whole two-week cruise we rarely talked to each other 
yeah, we didn't even have eyes for each other, you know? And the magic really happened was after the cruise, we somehow got connected and uh, we ended up going to San Blas, Panama, which is these chain of islands. There's 300 islands that go from Panama to Colombia. Beautiful. This is one of the the best places I've been in in my entire life. And uh, we went there for a couple nights and then we became friends and then one thing led to another. We ended up traveling together and being friends for an entire month uh, in Costa Rica and in Panama. And then we left each other. And I remember this is when I really first felt like I really liked this girl was when I left her and went back to California and she went back to Romania. I missed her immediately. We stayed in contact through WhatsApp for two and a half months. Long story short, I flew to Romania to surprise her for her birthday and did this crazy surprise with flowers and had an accomplice, one of her friends, tell her to meet her at a bus station, not knowing I was going to be there, right? I, I bought her 36 flowers, okay? And her friend was standing next to her at the bus station, and I was running around like a chicken with his head cut off, asking random strangers to go downstairs and hand her a flower and sing happy birthday, Denisa. So did that 35 times, and I was the last one with the last flower, and I came up and gave her, I gave her the last flower. So that had a huge spark in you know, uh, <laughs> us falling in love together. And fast forward, yeah, we moved in together in March and uh, got married in August. And yeah, I'm at a place in my life where I, I, I could not be happier. You know? But to answer your question, yeah, you can absolutely find love uh, being nomadic. I, I get it. I have a ton of friends that have a lot of short-term relationships because different countries, different cultures, different travel plans, you know? But I think if you just love yourself first and put yourself out there and just find someone you really like and you want to be with and just doing a crazy surprise for them, is, I guess this is the formula, it, it can absolutely work. You know, you can definitely find love being uh, being nomadic and traveling. And uh, that's our short love story in a nutshell. <laughs> that's amazing, man. I love it. It's so fun to see. It's so fun to see you guys together, man. Yeah. It's a, such a great story. So, We're still a work in progress. <laughs> We're not a perfect couple, man. I feel like relationships are forever a work in progress, which is how they stay interesting and how both people put in work in the relationship. And that's what grows and builds it and, and everything else, man. So... But um, awesome, though. I love I love seeing the two of you together. So Thank you, man. We are getting very close to the end of our bottle of wine here. Are you ready to <laughs> uh, to close this out with a few lightning round questions, David? Oh, man. I'm, I'm, I'm ready, bro. I, I, this is, yeah, I'm ready. You gotta, you gotta, <laughs> I'm, you, I'm, feel, I'm feeling good. <laughs> <laughs> this is when the good stuff is going to come out. All right. Lightning round. Here All we right. go. I just finished my last glass. The lightning round. What is one book? That has most happiness advantage you. The Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker. Um, this book I've read um, five to seven times. And let me finish the whole entire title. It's the happiness advantage that fuels work and life performance. Incredible book. It really dives deep into positive psychology and how it affects everything in your life. And I'll just give you a quick synopsis. Everyone thinks, and I thought this for a while, and I'm pretty sure you thought too, right? Go to school, get good grades, go out there, get a good job, make a ton of money, be successful, and then I'll be happy. That formula is completely broken, my man. Completely broken. And this book explains why. It explains that... If you learn, implement certain exercises, certain skills, and learn positive psychology, positive self-talk, gratitude, all these like not so macho things, 
But if you really apply and implement these things and learn to be happy in the moment and just learn to be an overall happy person, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what you don't have, regardless of your parents don't like, it doesn't matter. Just learn to be happy first. Success will come chasing right after, right? So it's reversed, right? So this book breaks it down. It's such a good book, my man. Awesome. I have not read that. I'm going to get on that yeah, right away. Yeah, that book is amazing. We're going to link it up in the show notes for sure. Everybody else, there'll be a link at themaverickshow.com in the show notes where you can get that book directly. I'm super excited That's to read it. That's why I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question. What is one app or productivity tool or gadget that you're currently using that you would highly recommend? One I use on a daily basis, Trello. You know Trello? Yeah, we use it as well at Maverick. Yeah, so it's yep. just a way to organize tasks. My whole entire Airbnb team uses it. My whole entire eBay team uses it. That's how I keep a pulse on my whole entire business is with that app. I literally can kind of see, uh, more, more like to see what everything is going on in, 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 in the Trello boards on that app. So that's the app I use pretty often. Awesome. If you could give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self. Ooh. Knowing everything you know now, experiencing everything you've experienced in life up until now, if you could go back, yeah, what would man. you say to 18-year-old David Vu? Man, I'm, I'm, I'm pausing for a second because I, I have the answer and um, I get emotional thinking about it, man. The answer I would actually give is probably not one that your audience would actually think I would say, but it's actually working less. Yep. Real truth, my man. Working less and taking the time to enjoy life more taking the time to say yes to my sister and going to her graduation, taking the time to say yes to go to my best friend's wedding, taking the time to say yes to, you get where I'm going, right? Because I was a fucking workaholic, my man. I said no to family and friends so much that they didn't even count on me anymore. I was that guy, you know? But I've lost a lot of opportunity on what really matters because like at the end of the day, you can make all the money in the world. There's that cliche saying, you make all the money in the world, but you can't take it to your grave. The most important thing is all the memories like this, man. I share this incredible memory with you sitting in your cabin, <laughs> drinking wine on this podcast. This is an awesome memory, right? It's all about building memories because that's what you can take to your grave. Memories and experiences, you know? So yeah, I, I would have worked less and made less money to spend time with the family and friends that I am making the money for, you know? So yeah. That's amazing. Who is one celebrity or author or public figure, somebody that's currently living today that you've never met that you would most love to sit down and have dinner with? Oh, good question. There's so many, man. But I have a lot of people that I look up to as far as business and financial success. But there's very few that has like this overall rounded well lifestyle with health, spirituality, family, you know, because a lot of these entrepreneurs, like, you know, I don't want to throw names out there. They're, they're always missing one or two things. They're incredibly successful. They're incredibly forward thinking, but they're horrible relationships and family, right? Do you know Paul G. Meyer? Yeah, he's an oil tycoon, but he had a very well rounded lifestyle. This man has an incredible story. Literally on his deathbed, he was reading a book, still learning. Yeah, incredible story, but yeah, very well connected, very grounded with his family, with spirituality, with his health and fitness, had time for everything, you know? That's who um, I would love to meet and connect with. Cool. How do you deal with stress in your life? What are your stress mitigation tactics or techniques that you use? Scuba diving. Scuba diving is my meditation. 
I do meditation as well. Um, but uh, I love getting outdoors, uh, going over a walk on the beach, going scuba diving, kite surfing, things that like, because my brain is constantly firing and moving really fast. So I need to like focus on activity like yoga, scuba diving, kite surfing to really slow me down and help me be in the moment and relieve my stress. So those are the things for me that work for me. What is one productivity hack or technique that you use to really optimize your output? Putting everything into... So if I have a big task I need to do, putting it into micro-sized tasks. So giving myself 15 to 30-minute increments to finish that task. So if I say, I need to do X, right? And that's a task that's going to take this much time, saying that this is going to take 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30-minute chunks to do. That's what I, I normally do. And always taking a, a quick two-minute break in between 30-minute chunks. Awesome. Okay, last two questions. First question is, what are your top three travel destinations of all time that you've ever been to that you would most recommend people visit? Oh, my God. So many, my man. I don't want to give a specific city. I'll just say the country, Thailand, number one, for value, for people, for nature, for food. It check marks every single box. And there's so many incredible cities in Thailand. I literally have been around every corner of Thailand. I love Thailand so much. It has a special place in my heart. Uh, it's where I actually spend most of my time outside of the US. Second, I would say Romania is where my wife is from. So it has a special place in my heart. Uh, same thing, food, culture, value, Nature, incredible, has some of the most scenic, epic drives. The Transfagadashan and the Transalpina, amazing, bro. Breathtaking. Romania is a, a, an absolutely beautiful, beautiful country. I think it's uh, completely underrated. Third, uh, I have to say Fiji. Fiji is just those. It's just that place that you see in like the magazines, the National Geographic, that picturesque place. Not Nandi, because that's where everyone lands, but the outside smaller islands of Fiji. Absolutely incredible. I have not yet been to Fiji. It's very high on my list, so yeah, I'm no. super excited about yeah. that. Yeah. All right. What are your top three bucket list destinations that you've never been that you most want to go? Oh, oh, for sure. Oh, so many. I don't have. A, I don't have three. Oh God, this is tough, man. Um, Bolivia. <laughs> and we talked about Bolivia before the show a little bit, right? Awesome choice, man. <laughs> I would recommend that highly. It's a good yeah, choice. Yeah, yeah, Bolivia for sure because of all these uh, different places that look like you're in different planets. Second, I would have to go with Australia. Australia and uh, third, uh, probably the Maldives. Awesome. I have not been to the Maldives either. Yeah, That's man. super high on my list. <laughs> um, all right, let's close this out with a final piece of advice that you might give to someone who is maybe working a regular job, you know, has these aspirations that there's more in life that they could potentially travel, they could potentially go their own route, they could potentially do this entrepreneurial thing, and they want more in life and they're just a little bit you know hesitant to figure out how to take that leap what is the move that that person should make what how should they be thinking what should their next step be to trying to get more out of their life if they're not currently satisfied with where they are two things first i would say is audit your time this is really important i have way too many personal friends of mine that are complaining about life complaining about not having enough, complaining about how much they make, right? But at the same time, they're spending way too much money playing video games and watching TV. 
right? So really auditing your time. Like I haven't watched TV except for Shark Tank <laughs> in like the last seven years, you know? So really auditing time because people, a lot of people make that excuse was, I mean, I work a nine to five, man. And I just don't have time to create a business. Dude, bullshit, man. You're spending 20, 30 hours a week watching freaking Game of Thrones. You know, that 20, 30 hours a week, you could build a side hustle on eBay or Airbnb or drive for a freaking Uber and make a couple of grand a month. That's the truth. I'm being honest, right? So auditing your time. Number two, I would say is don't quit your daytime job too early. I see so many people make the mistake. I want to be an entrepreneur. Man, this is the year I'm going to quit my full-time 60K, 70K, 30K, 40, whatever it is a year and go full-time entrepreneur, not even having a vehicle to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to burn all my bridges and put pressure on myself and be desperate and, and, and be successful. No, that's just the, I think personally, that's the worst formula. I can only think logically. And the logic says to me uh, is work your full-time job, audit your time, Find a little hustle on the side that you can make a few hundred dollars or a free grand a month and be patient. Build up that part-time business or the part-time hustle on the side, whether it's offline or offline. Build it up until you're making the same amount of money as your full-time job and then you can quit your job and scale it. That's it. It's pretty cut and dry and simple. That's awesome advice, man. I love it. All right, David. Uh, I want to let people know where they can find you, how they can follow you, how they can connect with you. First of all, we're going to link up uh, both of those Udemy courses that we talked sure. about in the show notes. So you just go to the maverickshow.com and go to the show notes for this episode and you'll be able to get direct links to David's uh, Airbnb arbitrage course and his dropshipping on eBay course. So you can learn his exact tactics and methods for those. But then beyond that, how can people either follow you on social media or connect with you otherwise? Uh, very easy to find me. All my handles are the same. So YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Udemy, just pick your poison. David Dang Vu. So David D-A-N-G-V-U. Uh, awesome. David, thank you so much for being here, man. This was a blast, bro. <laughs> so much brother. fun, bro. Finish the wine. I'm feeling good. Ready to go party, my man. <laughs> I love it, brother. Let's go get some dinner, my man. We'll talk to you later. Bye, guys. Thank you. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.